We're glad to receive gifts from donors, but what about when the donor puts a restriction on that gift? I'm Bill Stanjakevich. This is the first day from the fundraising school, and I'm joined today by my colleague Phil Purcell. Phil has extensive fundraising experience, which he translates so well when he teaches for us at the fundraising school, which is why I'm so glad that he's here on this podcast to help us understand this idea of donor restrictions. Phil, isn't a gift a gift? When there's a restriction, what's going on there? What do I need to understand as a fundraiser? Right. Well, the, the key point is to understand that there are some restrictions you can and probably should accept, okay. perfectly fine, and others that can be so bad that they're illegal. They could okay. even jeopardize the donor's deduction or charity's tax-exempt status. Okay. So like a lot of things in life, there are pros and cons. And so what would be some of the examples? I'm thinking right away, something that's contrary to my mission. You know, you can have this gift, but as the donor, I'm restricting this to this type of activity that conflicts with my mission. That would seem pretty obvious right off the top. Yeah, that's a very good point. And uh, just because maybe you can do something doesn't mean you should. Yeah. And so accepting a gift just because it's a big gift, but with a restriction that doesn't really serve your purpose, maybe your best course to say no thank you or to try to redirect them to a purpose or use that does fulfill your mission uh, but those are sometimes uh, instances that charities struggle with because the gift can be really large and but we have a duty of obedience to the mission we've said we're, we're pursuing and 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 that's important but this idea of, of restricting gifts is something that's becoming more common and prevalent um, I now have a career that spans a certain number of years, mm. and early in my career, uh, I worked mostly with World War II veterans. Wow. And I like to characterize a lot of their giving or their mantra for giving as I love you and I trust you, mm. uh, and uh, very unrestricted. And now I'm working with more of the baby boomers, kind of my generation. Okay. And I think of our mantra more as I love you, but I'm not sure I trust you. Mm. So they attach restrictions to make sure that you're doing what you know, I want you to do. Uh, and so it can be a little different and challenging. So Phil, what are some of these restrictions that you hear about from donors? What, what's kind of standard out in the field that a fundraiser could expect? Well, you know, one basic restriction that a lot of charities like to do is a restriction for endowment. Mm -hmm. So uh, accepting a gift for endowment is a restriction, i.e. your organization is promising to invest some amount of money uh, and there's no guarantee here on what that amount uh, forever will be, but uh, you are have, taking on an obligation to hold it a principal amount forever. So th now that's a uh, restriction as to endowment or not. Now there are other restrictions as to purpose or use. So you can have an endowed gift that also has a use restriction, like an endowment for a scholarship, mm -hmm. or an endowment to pay for a program or help with a program, or an endowment to help with maintenance on a new building. So you can combine endowment with other purpose restrictions, or people can just not endow a gift, but have these purpose restrictions, money for a scholarship, maintenance, program support. So donor restrictions are kind of within the family of donor intent, Yes, it sounds like, right? Well, absolutely. And there are a lot of court cases where uh, donor intent is trying to be figured out after a donor is deceased, which can be a real problem because you can't ask them anymore what they meant. So the bigger the gift, the more specific the intent, the better it is for the organization to write something down. Uh, a, a gift agreement, uh, a fund agreement, uh, if they're doing it in a planned gift, uh, that document might have it. This is a good reason to ask people to see copies of their planned gift documents so that if they have a restriction, 
you can read it and see if there's going to be a problem and you can fix it before they're gone. And Phil, we certainly want to fundraise with integrity. We don't teach fundraising at the fundraising school. We teach ethical fundraising at the fundraising school. And there's this issue that within my nonprofit, I have a certain annual budget, or if I have a campaign, I have a certain total. But what happens when I exceed that annual budget, when I exceed that campaign total, but I have these donors who are placing intent or restriction, how can I phrase my ask in a way that is as broad as possible? So I'm thinking about, for example, if I'm raising money for a building, how do I phrase that ask in a way that if I do exceed my goal, I can still use those gifts for maintenance and repair, for example, it's still part of the building. How do we approach the design of our fundraising ethically in that regard? Right. Well, you know, it's it goes to um, the bigger the gift, the more likely you might want to sign something with the donor mm -hmm. to be clearly stated that the gift uh, could be a preference for XYZ use, such mm -hmm. as the building of the building. But uh, if, in fact, that uh, preference is already met or your goal is accomplished, then for other things. And maybe the donor builds in a plan B. Okay, if your goal's met, then here's plan B for my gift, or it's unrestricted at that point. And of course, all organizations want as much unrestricted gifts as they can get. Uh, and that might be a way to approach it, is, is stating restrictions as preferences. And we see some of our disaster relief organizations, for example, doing this when we hear about the hurricane or the tsunami. They say, please donate to alleviate this and similar situations in case they exceed a goal or quote unquote have money left over, then they can use it for the next hurricane or so forth. Right. Yeah. It, it, uh, so what we communicate can be embedded not only in our signed agreements with donors and their documents, but also in our fundraising materials. Yeah. Uh, you know, what we say to donors we're raising money for. For example, in the, in the law of most states, if you say you're raising money for endowment, even if the donor's check or gift doesn't say endowment, your fundraising materials are implication that it was for endowment. Um, I might also add there are restrictions that are illegal. And what are some you've got of to avoid. And, yeah. and you t speak about, uh, you know, avoiding unethical matters. This is one of them. So restrictions that provide, uh, for example, uh, a benefit back to the donor so or family. So I make a gift for a scholarship fund and I'm restricting that my kids get right. the scholarship. Um, or I'm making a gift to you uh, to help my family, you know, deal with a fire that burned down our house. Well, these, this, is, this is personal benefit. This will not qualify for a deduction and might even jeopardize your tax exempt status if it's showing that you're benefiting a donor in this way. I'm a vendor, let's say I'm in the insurance business, I'll make a major gift as long as you buy your insurance from me. Exactly. Unethical, probably illegal, right. those are the restrictions we say no we, to. Obviously. We have to avoid those excess yeah. benefits. Another uh, kind of restriction that's similar to that is uh, using the charity as a conduit to benefit specific people, not maybe you or your family, but donors cannot earmark uh, a gift to benefit a pre-identified person. Mm -hmm. uh, so you see GoFundMe pages when there are sometimes very tragic scenarios of specific persons or family who need financial help, but unfortunately you can't make a gift and designate it for that specific purpose. Now organizations could have what are called Good Samaritan funds where you give to and then in the future uh, they can grant to individual people to help them, but, uh, but, but donors can't pre-identify their recipients. So if this is a restriction that you are uh, comfortable with, that aligns with your mission, that certainly is ethical, make sure you have a gift agreement. Phil has mentioned to that, uh, that to us a couple of times here. Get it in writing, have everybody sign so that there is no disagreement moving forward. 
Conversely, Phil, again, let's assume that the restriction is ethical and is legal. We teach that fundraisers still don't have to accept every gift. We don't have to have people clean out their attics and have us take everything. There can be things as we fundraise with confidence that we can say no to. Is there a way to work with a donor to try to get to yes if that initial restriction just doesn't make sense for us, for our organization? Well, absolutely. And it's, it's why good fundraisers should be good at relationship building and maintaining. Uh, it's all about the conversation and the communication. And, and making sure donors understand why the restriction may not work or be, or be particularly helpful to them. And um, uh, so, you know, you could have in gift acceptance policies a list of the types of designated purposes that are appropriate and, and maybe even a list of ones that might commonly you've received that are inappropriate, you will not take. So sometimes your gift acceptance policies can be a, a strategic way to tell a donor, you know, we've, we've thought about what we can take restrictions for. This has been approved by our board of directors and I don't really have authority to vary from that. Now, if it's compelling, well, maybe you'll make an exception. Uh, but that's a way to sometimes deal with that. So donor intent, of course, is essential, and that includes this category of donor restriction. We need to make sure that, that that restriction is consistent with our mission, certainly is ethical and legal, and that we can all remember what we agreed upon with a very straightforward gift agreement. Phil, thanks so much for your expertise on this very important issue related to effective fundraising. And more information about the fundraising school is available on our website at philanthropy.iupui.edu forward slash the fundraising school. You'll learn about our many courses that are available, 17 public courses in more than a dozen U.S. cities, as well as custom training that can be performed specifically for your organization, your association, your city or region. We can bring the fundraising school right to you anywhere in the world. The website also includes information about our quarterly webinars. You'll also find all these podcasts archived on our website, and you can play back the podcast and the webinars for that matter as staff training as well as at your board meetings. I'm Bill Stajakavich, and now you are now more up to date on this first day from the Fundraising School.